Hello, everybody, and we're super glad to have you back. We have a special treat today. We have our first on-the-road recording. We are down here at Heart Village, a really cool place with the executive director here, Phil. Um, hello, Phil. Glad to be able to talk to you here a little bit. Um, and would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Well, hello, everybody, and uh, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you all, and uh, thank you for making this a possibility so my name is Philip Murphy, and I originate from Mississippi. Uh, I was born in Texas. Uh, I am 60 years old, so I was born December 2nd, uh, 1961. And um, it has been quite a journey. I was born in a strong Christian family, and I had an aunt, my mom's only sister, who had a huge influence on my life at a very young age. I became a Christian when I was nine years old. And we were one of those churches that back then a lot of missionaries would come through and I was one of those weird kids that loved the missionary stories. And it just so happened that my mom's only sister, uh, who doesn't live far from here now, she lives over in Tampa, but she uh, felt called to the mission field and went to Kenya, Africa and spent three years there. When she returned back to the United States, she lived with us for a little while and she would tell me stories of Africa and she would tell me stories of teaching children and the animals that she would see when she would go on safari and the work that she did at the school there. And as a young child, I was probably five or six years old at the time. I was really fascinated by that. So she would, uh, she was smart. So she used it to, uh, to get me to do things I probably wouldn't have uh, been willing to do, but she would say, hey, I'll tell you some more stories if you'll help me wash the dishes tonight after supper. So she made a little place for me to step up on a stool and help her wash the dishes. And then we go into the living, to the dining room that we had just cleared after dinner and she would throw a sheet over it. We'd climb underneath and that was our tent. And my brothers, my older brothers would make, you know, monkey and mosquito noises. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, so that was, I, I I tell people all the time, those were the seeds that were planted. It was the storytelling. And um, as I got older, I started feeling that that's what I was supposed to do, that somehow I felt like God was leading me to, to do missions work of some type. And then mm. I went to school, you know, went to uh, elementary school, junior high and high school. And uh, high, uh, high school graduation day, the day of graduation, which is a proud, honor, honorable time for most people, was one of the probably the saddest days of my life because I – had all my life just said, you know, God's going to lead me, and and uh, I don't know where that's going to be, but I'm I'm trusting God, and somehow He's going to open a door. And and graduation day came, and all my friends had scholarships and were going to college, and I suddenly realized, oh, high school's over, yeah, and uh, I have no plans. And so that summer, I spent the summer working and started thinking about, well, my dad, you know, he joined the Navy, maybe. I should just join the military. Maybe the Navy would be a good place for me. So I started contemplating that as the summer was coming to a close. And out of the blue, uh, back then it was Warner Southern College, which is Warner University now. That's the property that we're on here. Um, they called me and said, hey, Phil, you fill out an application. I don't even remember even filling out the application. And they said, uh, we were holding a place for you here at the, at the college. We'd love to have you. Uh, are you still planning on coming? So I was like, I don't know. Let me talk to my mom and dad. So I talked to my parents and uh, they said, yeah, that's what you feel like you want to do. And so I prayed about it and uh, I felt like, you know, uh, it's one of the first times I remember kind of saying, okay, Lord, if you, if you want me to go, you got to help me figure this out. And so long story short, I ended up getting some late graduation money and it was enough for me to buy a plane ticket down here. Hmm. I had no idea what I was doing, getting into. I came down um, some weird, some not say weird, but strange people, strangers picked me up at the airport. Didn't know who they were. Uh, at the little, it was a little Orlando airport then, and, and brought me down here to the college. And lo and behold, uh, within just a few weeks, I started uh, classes and getting to know some of the professors. And I met uh, Dr. Robert Clark and Charlie Smith. Um, Robert Clark and his wife Fran had been spending, had spent uh, probably about 30 to 35 years in India and Bangladesh um, doing ministry uh, with the Church of God. And Charlie and Karen Smith had been with the Peace Corps for about six years in Malaysia. And th those two men were probably the heaviest influence on my life 
uh, in my young adult years. And I uh, loved their classes. Charlie taught me uh, anthropology, and Dr. Clark was my missions teacher. And so that freshman year, they heavily influenced my life. And during those classes, I remembered the commitment to missions that I had when I was a small child. Mm. And I still was wondering how it was all going to come to fruition, but I started remembering that. And it just so happened that that year, in the spring of 1980, when I was graduating from high school, there were a, a group of students here at Warner Southern College, and they had gone with Food for the Hungry International, and they had done what they called Hunger Corps back then. And I'm not sure if they still do Hunger Corps or not, but it was kind of an intern, an international internship program where young people in college could go and serve uh, around the world in different locations. And I think there were around nine or 12 students that went uh, with them over the summer and some into the fall even. Uh, that Some older students, I think, stayed a little bit longer. But a group of those students came back the fall that I started my freshman year, and they were asking the question, could we do a better job of preparing people to go overseas? And what they were referring to was not theologically. They felt they were theologically prepared. They yeah. just felt like they weren't physically and culturally prepared. And so they came back telling stories of you know, living in refugee camps and working in refugee camps and working in Peru and eating guinea pigs that you and I were just talking about yeah. earlier. And some were living with the Maasai and traveling around with them. And they just felt like they didn't really have anything to offer these people uh, for their physical needs and, and meeting some of their daily uh, needs. And so sure. they said, is there a place where um, Westerners could train and live in difficult situations or without some of the amenities that we have here in the United States to better train them? And also, while they're training, can they learn some valuable skills that would benefit people that are farmers, uh, that are living in refugee camps, uh, don't have clean water, those kinds of things. And so Dr. Clark and uh, Mr. Smith, they met with some people from Food for the Hungry International, and um, they started putting their heads together with the, the folks at the college. And the college said, well, we got all this property over there. You guys could have a piece of property. And uh, they they allocated uh, 40 acres of land out here and allowed us to start coming out here. And I think when we first started, they just thought these are a bunch of kids and professors out there playing around in the woods and, <laughs> and it'll never, they'll, they'll, yeah. they'll give up someday, you know, but it grew and grew and grew and Food for the Hungry invested some money and uh, Charlie had some connections and was able to raise some funds as well. And so that was the birth of, uh, of heart. Um, and we can talk more about that later, but I want to skip more to my story. Yeah. And um, that is, I, I came out here as a freshman and, and kind of dedicated a couple of years out here helping uh, the college and the professors build the program. I worked on most of the buildings that you see out here. The dining hall was one of the first ones. And then the house that the cabin that you're staying in was the house that I stayed in. Uh, we called it the boys' cabin back then. <laughs> and. Um, during that time, I met my wife. Uh, we met in uh, 1983, I believe, and we were married by 1984. And we both had worked, uh, had been in Haiti. She had spent more time in Haiti than I had. Uh, I had been on some work camps. She actually lived there for a summer. Was that uh, during college that you went or high school? When was it? It was college. Okay. So we met here. Uh, she was a student at Warner Southern College. I had dropped out of college and was just working and living out here and helping out here. Sure. With you going to, to Haiti, though, and you, your experience then overseas, that was... So that was, yeah. So we we, we got <clears throat> married in 1984, mm -hmm. and we were married in September. Our anniversary was yesterday, 38 years. Okay. And so we got married and right here in Lake Wales, and um, we our first house was the house that the girls that are in right now. The girls <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah, that was wow. our first house. We lived there for nine months. and uh, But we both felt called to missions, and we felt called to Haiti. Mm. And so at the end of that nine months, we found out that uh, we were pregnant. And so we moved over to a trailer park near the college, and I went, yeah. I went back to work full time. And in the midst of that 
full-time work. I was doing work camps to Haiti uh, with a group of, of, of friends. And it was during that time, uh, that was 80, 84 to, uh, to, 90, to 80, 84 to 86. And in 86, the Duvaliers uh, were kicked out of Haiti. And it was strange to say, but it was right after they were kicked out. I went down to a very volatile time. But I felt like God was saying it's time to go. So I came back from that trip, and my wife had been spending some time with some friends, and some of the wives of those of us that went on the trip uh, were meeting together and praying for us. And uh, when I got off the plane and came back here to Lake Wales, the first thing I said to her was, I think we need to talk. And she looked at me, and she said, yes, we do. And we both said the same thing to each other. So in her prayer time, she felt Mm. like it's time for us to go. And I was feeling the same thing when I was there in Haiti. And so we... I quit my job. We sold everything that we had. A friend of ours um, sold us a car for $1. It was an old beat-up station wagon. (laughs) And we loaded our daughter, a guinea pig, I think, and uh, all of our belongings that we kept uh, into a station wagon. And we just started calling friends and connections to churches. And we traveled for about nine months and we were trying to raise money to go to Haiti. Mm. And during that time, of course, we had, uh, one of the orphanages where my wife had, had worked, uh, they needed somebody to come and help. Mm. So we were focusing on going down and helping with that orphanage. How old was your daughter at this point? Very young. Our daughter was, uh, by the time we got to Haiti, um, she was, uh, they see, she would have been about a year old. Wow! By the time we got there, it, it was it, we weren't the smartest people. <laughs> so but, we, hey, God led you there. You know, He had Him on your side. Absolutely. So, so I, tell, I tell people all the time, God did amazing things not because of us, but but despite us. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, um, long story short, we traveled around nine months. We raised some money, and then the yeah. lady that we were going to help, she passed away. And they said, we've got all these kids down here. We need your help. Hmm. So we packed our daughter and all of our belongings into five duffel bags. And we had a friend that was going to go down with us to help us get things set up, a college friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we all flew down to Haiti. And we had no money to rent a house. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but all the younger kids, 19, the kids, 17 girls and two boys, the oldest being around 12 or 13 years old, we're living in the home of a missionary friend of ours, and uh, we moved into that home as well. So there was a missionary, a single woman, a, a little older than us, and uh, she was from Jamaica, and the lady who had owned the orphanage was also a Jamaican. And so we went down and tried to negotiate getting the property where the orphanage was, and it was tied up in all kinds of political and stuff that we didn't want to get in the midst of so sure. we, we were just trusting god and so for three months we lived with this uh, friend of ours uh, the other uh, the other missionary and we every night uh josiah we lined up the kids and helped them brush their teeth i mean they mm. had been kind of on their own since she was in bad physical condition for quite a while so the kids had kind of been taking care of themselves so when we got there, if we gave them the toothpaste, they would eat it. They would just wow. pass it around and eat all the toothpaste. Jeez, and so yeah. we had to like, we made this little wooden box that had their names and we had all their toothbrushes and every yeah. night we'd put the toothpaste on the toothbrush and they'd line up, we'd hand it to them, they'd brush their teeth, we'd put it back in the little box. Yeah. It was crazy. And so we did that for three months and then got, there were people here praying for us and, and there was a couple here in the local church here in South Lake Wales Church of God. It was an older couple. They had been married a few times. Their spouses had died. And they had found one another and felt like God wanted them to get married. And they were in their, I think, 70s or 80s at yeah. the time. And uh, so they were going to have a big wedding at the church. And they decided, you know what, we're, we're not going to do that. We're just going to have a simple wedding. And all the money that we had set aside for our wedding, we're going to send to Phil and Bonnie. Mm. So they sent down to us. And the neat thing about that story was they had lots of things planned at the church and, you know, honeymoon and all that. And they gave all that up. Yeah. And uh, the neat thing was that people found out about that. And it was kind of that pay it forward kind of idea where they heard about it and they said, well, we're going to take care of them. So they had really, they had a really nice wedding. People provided stuff and people gave them a honeymoon. And yeah. All the things that they quote gave up, 
uh, God provided. So I thought that was a really neat part of the story. And with that money, though, we were, and and another woman who was from my uh, wife's home church donated some money. We were able to finally find a home, rent a place in Haiti, and and move the kids into that home. And... uh, and that was around what nineteen twenty children you said what was it that? was nineteen nineteen seventeen girls and two boys wow. uh, and it was crazy what, times what was the times. age range with a lot of them the oldest was around thirteen or so and the youngest was probably um, I'm gonna guess six five or six years old yeah in fact I'll, re- I'll I'll jump up for just a second yeah go ahead that's fine you won't be able to see it folks that are listening. But I will get the pleasure of seeing it, and I want to. <laughs> so Josiah wow. is now looking at the picture of wow. us with our daughter and the 19 kids. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you mind? I, we can probably take a photo of it, and we'll put it on oh, our yeah. Instagram, yeah, and fo- folks absolutely. can see it. We can do that. All right. Well, those are great. Those are great memories. But uh, we were we were really crazy. <laughs> So we t- so when we lived in the home with our missionary friend, she did have a one large bedroom that she used often to like. It had bunk out. It had bunk beds in it. So when work groups would come down or when pastors would come into town or whatever, she could bunk them. Yeah. And that's where the kids lived for the first three months, and they all lived in one room together. Wow. They slept on the floor mostly because that's mm. how they've been living yeah. for a while. And then, uh, you know, we had to go through that whole thing of really teaching them how to sleep in a bed and we moved to the new facility. And uh, so we spent the first 10 years or so in in, uh, Port-au-Prince. And it was just a 10-year, it was a 10-year journey of of faith. I'm sorry, I turned away and was looking at you. It's all good. (laughs) I did what you told me not to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's a tight space. But, um, yeah, it was a 10-year journey of of trusting God. I mean, we, I, I can't tell you how much our faith grew because like i said we we raised money uh and then we went down there but we didn't have enough money to support the orphanage we didn't have enough money to support ourselves sure and so it was uh it was a daily weekly monthly kind of a thing we were just trusting the lord every week um something like that definitely helps your overall walk with christ you definitely have that strength and that faith after you have 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 to yeah and so from 1986 until about 19 1991, that five-year period or so, uh, Haiti went through seven different governments, and most of them were through violent overthrows. And sometimes our our neighborhood was right in the middle of it or not too far from it. So that was really scary times, interesting times. I mean, there were times when we're crawling on the floor because there's bullets, you know, flying in the neighborhood. I can't see any heavy at the house, but... It's loud enough Still, that it, yeah. you, you keep your head down. Yeah. And, you know, there's the, like the electricity goes off and you have no idea what's going on. Those are some difficult times. Uh, and like you said, it, it creates uh, a great space for faith. Yeah. And you just have to trust the Lord. Um, the other thing that was really fun that we reflect on and the kids that we, that are now adults that reflect on <clears throat> those original kids, the original 19 that we had, really reflect on the fact that we every night we had devotions with them. Mm. So one of the things we did, we sent them, we didn't do homeschool with them. We thought about doing it, but we wanted them to be as Haitian as possible. Yeah. We didn't want to turn them into little American kids that didn't fit into their own society. Yeah. And so we sent them to local schools, and then they would come home every day, and uh, they do we to do their homework. And then in the evening, after they were bathed and ready for bed, we had devotions with them, and we sang songs, and we had contests and stuff, and learning scriptures, and we played games, and uh, we played bingo. That was their favorite <laughs> game. They loved playing bingo. And uh, those memories are some of the ones that we really cherish, and, and my, my two uh, children, David and Michelle, do as well. And uh, so we did that for about 10 years, and then... We were, we've always wanted to be doing farming because of my training here at heart. My real heart has to do with feeding people. Yeah. And I really, I'm for those who live in cities, I apologize, but I'm not really a city person. Uh, and so I felt like the healthiest thing for us to do for those kids was to try and get them out of the city mm-hmm. and get them into a setting. And so we had, tr- we tried for many, many years trying to buy property and we would buy, we would save up money. We bought property and then it would turn out 
wasn't safe to move there or the mm. or somebody showed up with, with another set of papers it was it was a nightmare we had several pieces of property that we purchased and lost mm. and so it was about nine- like money handed over purchased and then lost yep wow lost. jeez time after time after time jeez and uh so there was um some friends of ours who we had he was haitian he, he is haitian and he's married to a gal from Georgia, and we become friends friends with them. And we had connections because he had gone to school in Mississippi. And we, long story short, this, this can be a story for another day. It's a God thing. But his best friend was a brother of a guy that I went to high school with okay. that was also from Haiti. Huh. That I remember, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I remember talking about Haiti when I was in high school, and I didn't yeah. know anything about it. It's, it's a crazy wow. story. So anyhow, uh, his wife came by the house one day, and I was discouraged. I would say I was almost depressed. I was, you know, nothing was working out. The properties were falling through, and uh, I mean, even more than that. I mean, you're talking about revolutions and war and bullets and oh, like yeah. all this stuff and all this stress that comes with, you know, taking care of 19 children there, and you know, that's that's a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, seeing dead bodies. Yeah, you know, that, that's a whole. It's a lot of trauma. Yeah. So one day I'm just at the house and I'm really discouraged and she comes by and, and I'm at the house and Lonnie I think was teaching at the time at the Christian school there and she and I started talking and she, she said, you know, you seem really down and so I began to share with her I'm really discouraged. I always wanted to get the kids out of town and every time we buy a piece of property it falls through and 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 one of the things that happened um, on the last piece of property that really shook me was that um, our we hired a lawyer and he was working on straightening it all out. And he came up, found in his office with a bullet in the back of his wow. head. Wow. Oh so I was like, well, we're moving that piece of property yeah. along, alone. Jeez. Um, so that really shook me. Yeah. So she said, have you ever thought about moving up into the mountains? And I was like, no, I've never thought about that. She said, well, um, let me talk to my husband, but uh, I think we'd like for you guys to come up and see you know, where he, his family owns property. So long story short, uh, that Saturday we went up and uh, they showed us a piece of property. There was a home there that was unfinished, uh, but it was like three quarters finished. And they said, if you guys want to work and finish this, you can come up here and stay here. We'll we'll make arrangements with the rest of the family and the church that's here that, that's connected to it. And uh, so we made some negotiations and they said, you can stay and work here in the community and stay in this home for free for three years. And so we said, yes, yeah. so we would, uh, another long story, but we needed to work on the property and it was about an hour and a half drive up into the mountains. And so going up there every day was kind of hard to do for us because we were still had the orphanage and the kids. Of course, by this time, you know, they're teenagers and getting mm-hmm. older and uh, other demands. And so um, we would take the kids up those that would want to go we would take them up on the weekends and there was a old homestead on the property i mean we, we would call it a shack but this friend of mine who grew up there this was his grandfather's house yeah i mean it was very basic yeah stone and mud and uh, did have a concrete floor um and metal roof it had that roof when he was younger but now it had a metal roof so we'd go up every weekend and we would take some food and the kids and I would work on the house. Mm. And uh, it was one of those crazy times where we look back on it now and it's like, man, those were some really neat times because yeah. we're in the dark, you know, you have flashlights, yeah. there's no electricity. And there was a guy named Janti and Janti became a very good friend of ours. And Jutty lived nearby, and he kind of would look out for us when we'd come. And he'd come and sleep at the house with us and take care of us. And he was a friend of, of my friend. And um, he would always bring Haitian coffee every morning. <laughs> he'd bring some bread and some Haitian coffee over for us. And so we moved up into that community eventually. We got the house finished, and we moved the kids up there. And it was really funny. One of the things that jumps out to me is, when we moved them up there, of course, we're all excited about it, and yeah. we're 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 thinking this is going to be really great. Well, we didn't finally happening, yeah. We didn't think of the fact that these children have never lived in the country. Mm. They're city kids, yeah. And there's lots of um, you know superstitions in in, okay. in 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 Haiti, and so the the first night we're there, they we're excited. They're scared, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, 
and they won't go outside and they're yeah. coming upstairs going we think there's you know a bad person in the yard or a wild animal or something yeah. and they're whispering and and finally i realized oh my goodness these kids they're terrified yeah so it took a while you know and it was you know they they had friends in the city and we took them away from those people yeah and, and but now we look back on it and you know they're very much a part of the community now yeah and it's hard to believe that at one time they weren't yeah didn't feel that way yeah how, so, how many years into this uh, are we right now into our time in haiti yeah so uh we are now we moved there in 86 and we moved up to, into the mountains in 97 okay okay and so uh, 97 we moved up there and um one of the one of the tough things but also one of the best things that happened was in the process of moving up there we went up one day to check the property and someone had thrown a, a stone through the front window and mm. broken a window out. Yeah. And uh, so then we went up another day. We, we moved up there and when we came home, it was set up on the hill. So we were coming up the driveway uh, that was concrete that we had made. And we noticed that water was running out of the the pipe from the, the cistern that was on the roof. Yeah. And somebody had... Very obviously cut it with a machete. Wow. So we started inquiring, you know, what's going on. And so there was some family tension that we had moved into in the community mm. and that we didn't know about. And mm. so we're trying to figure out who, you know, who's doing it. Yeah. What are we going to do about it? And so in the meantime, we're actually building a wall around the property to keep, like, we had dogs. Yeah. And we didn't want the orphanage kids running around and yeah. people coming into yeah. to the property and protect the kids and stuff. Makes sense. And we're starting farming. We have we have five or six acres there that we're working with. Sure. So there was a stretch of uh, block wall that was probably um, maybe 30 or 40 feet from the corner of the church, which was connected to the property that we were moving into. And, and the other wall that we had that went in up around the pro the bigger part of the property. Yeah. <clears throat> and so um, I had a block layer, a guy that that I had met in the community. He was a construction person. And uh, he was working on the walls for me. And when he got to that piece, I remember he came in uh, one day. It was almost noontime. And he said, Phil, he goes, we need to talk. I said, what's the matter? And he said, uh, every time my block layers start laying block uh brother nari steel uh, one of the guys that lived in the community um comes over and he kicks the wall over and i went okay i said it's almost noontime i said uh, where is he he was well he's sitting right out there and he's got his he's a farmer and so he's got his little sickle you know his little metal sickle yeah for what looks intimidating you know he's got yeah. the hooked knife yeah. you know <laughs> and he's sitting on the back of the church but I know he's a Christian. I know he's a believer, and uh, I, I knew of him at the time. So I said, well, "Why don't you guys take a lunch break, and I'll go talk to him." So I went out there, and I just said hi, and I sat down beside him, and and I just said, "Hey, you know what's going on?" and and he began to share his story and and uh, the tension that he had felt uh, with the rest of the family. He was connected to the family that owned the property where I lived, and and he shared how he felt hurt because some of them had gotten opportunities and, you know, had come to the United States and been educated. And some of them were pastors and lived here in the U.S. Some would go back and forth between Haiti and and the United States. And he had always just been there. Yeah. And he was poor and, you know, scraping by. And uh, he just was, he was just acting out some of his anger mm. and his frustration. And uh, one of the things he would do is when they would put up the, the string for the block, he would go over with his little sickle knife and hmm. cut the string, you know. So I said, well, Brother Nari Steele, I said, uh, I'm, I, and I knew there was some history, you know, and yeah. there had been some other missionaries that had moved up in the house and there were some problems in the past. And I said, I'm here for everybody. I'm not here for just one part of the family or one part of the community. I'm here for everybody. And uh, I want to help you and I want to help people in the community and uh i said i'm not here just to have an orphanage i want to i want to help and i said if you'll if you'll let us finish working and and close up this wall this wall is not to keep people out it's to keep us in so that my kids don't do any damage in the community and i don't want my dogs to hurt anybody and they're my guardians you know yeah at night time and i said if you'll let us do that uh 
I promise you, if you if you feel that I have spoken ill and and not honestly with you, when the time comes, I'll come and tear this wall down and and I'll leave, and hmm. you won't have to ask me to leave. And he agreed. He said okay. And so yeah. I said, can we pray together? So we prayed together. And again, a long story short, uh, we lived there from '97 until we left in 2007. And when we left, uh, Narsteel was one of my very best mm. friends. Mm. Um, and uh, he was a great man of God and one of our great leaders in the community. And his daughter, uh, one, I think his oldest daughter, uh, became my wife's best friend. Wow. And they were the ones that had been breaking the pipes and yeah. throwing, the, throwing yeah. the rocks through the window. But, you know, through that story, I was reminded uh, that we everybody has a story. And so oftentimes when we someone hurts us or does something towards us, we want to react. Yeah. And I had learned lessons along the way um, when I lived in Port-au-Prince. Uh, and a friend of mine taught me uh, an early on lesson to try and learn how to not react to people, but to respond to people. Mm. And so uh, by the time I met Nari Steele, I was at a place, which I wouldn't have been 10 or 11 years earlier. Yeah. I, when yeah. I was younger, I wouldn't have been there. I would have reacted. Sure. And uh, but I, I mean, res- I think that's that's common for a lot of folks to respond that way. Someone's cutting my pipes and knocking over my wall, you know, yeah. like <laughs> being able to, to take that time to restrain yourself and you know ask the bigger picture what's going on and let's hear the story yeah like that that's that's awesome and it, it seems like it played out very well for you and it built a friendship it really and, did and uh and what i want to encourage people is if you have people like that in your life um sit down and listen to their story yeah and, and hear their pain um because as a result he became one of my best friends yeah. and, and awesome. greatest advocates in the community that's because awesome. he was well respected because he was old mm. and had been there a long time and had a lot of say-so in the community. So as we grew in our relationship, when it came time for us to do like community projects and stuff, yeah, I didn't have to go out and politic. Yeah, and that's huge. That is so board. huge. He would just go, we're doing this, and everybody would fall in the line. You know? Yeah, we, I mean, that's one big thing we always talk about, you know, wanting to help communities is getting those community leaders on board and getting them to help. And if you don't have them on board or getting someone in the community to, you know, help, a lot of these projects might not last. You know, we want to get the people excited about a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, that is, I mean, huge. It was, it was huge, Saya. And the other part of that was not only was there family history, but there was community history. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things that we began to see ourselves doing was how, how can a part of community building is how can we help them heal from the past? Mm. And so we spent a lot of time working with people who didn't talk to each other, uh, different leaders and stuff in the community, small community. I mean, the greater Calabas area is maybe five or 6,000 people, and okay. half of those are, were kids at the time, you know? Okay. And, um, but we spent a lot of time bringing those people together. And it's what I talk about in my cross-cultural communications and community development class is you have to identify the, the movers and the shakers in the community. Yeah. And if they're not speaking to one another, one of the first things you have to do is get everybody to where they can just sit at the table and tolerate one another. Mm. So we began to do that uh, with community (laughs) projects and with meals and things like that, just getting people to just sit down and start recognizing one another again. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, in those situations, people have generational hurt or generational pain or generational anger. And when you sit them down to talk about them, they really don't know what it, they can't really articulate what it is anymore. Yeah. Um, Cause it happened so long ago Yeah, or it may not even happen to them. It may have happened to their parents, Yeah, but it's been carried over to the next generation. Mm-hmm. So we spent some of our years working on those relationships. And I would say that as I look back, that's the most beautiful thing that I can point to mm-hmm. about the work that we did there, which wasn't our specific work because we were there running an orphanage yeah. and also working in the community doing agricultural stuff at that time as well. But through that, I learned that those things are important. Mm-hmm. That's what's really eternal in a way is helping bridge uh, relationships and heal people. 
And one of the pastors I met along the way, he's still a friend of mine now, he's Pastor Monois. He's still up there in Calabas. And when we first met Monois, he was young. He was a part of the church that was connected to the property that we were on. Yeah. But he was, uh, when I met him, he was kind of having trouble. And uh, it turns out that he had some uh, a mental illness of some kind. I guess some people, at one time they diagnosed him as being bipolar. Okay. But Pastor Monois uh, was a good-hearted man, but his emotions were all over the place at the time. And so he he was having what I would call kind of like psychotic episodes. Mm-hmm. And we were praying for him, and he would always come and tell us to pray for him. And there were times that you know, he'd be very manic, and other times he'd be very depressed and discouraged. And he was coming to the States and getting treatment and stuff. And I'd have to ask him, I should ask him now whatever happened because it seemed like God healed him because I don't know that he's still on medications of any kind. But at some point, all of a sudden, he balanced out. And now he's one of the, his church is one of the fastest growing churches in the area. And uh, I say that, I tell that story because he was a part of those early days when we were trying to build some of those bridges. And he was our biggest cheerleader. Mm. And sometimes a little too much. We go to community <laughs> meetings and we're talking about problems in the community, and we're sitting in the audience. Me and my Haitian friend, who yeah. you know d- did some work and stuff in the community, we're letting other people lead the meeting and just a part of it. He would stand up and go, "Well, let's just let those guys. They're doing such a great job. Let's let <laughs> let, let them be in charge." And I'd be going, Shh, "Don't don't do that." Yeah, uh, and so. But he is, and now what I really like about Pastor Monwa is he's a servant leader. Mm. You know, here in the United States, and it happens in Haiti as well, pastors are very uh, possessive. Sure. And uh, especially there, there's a real, you know, history of strong people uh, in the government. And it kind of, it's a part of their culture. And so it, it carries over into the church. So a lot of churches okay. are almost authoritarian wow, yeah. led okay. by the pastors, very strong leaders. And uh, Pastor Monwa is not. And uh, through all that he went through, one of the things that I really have appreciated about him, and I just was recently on on Facebook with him and telling how much I appreciate him, is that he one of the first things he started doing was he started encouraging young men in the community to go to seminary and learn to be preachers if they mm. felt calling, and he was trying to help them raise money and do that. Yeah. And he really supported many of them. And I tell people this all the time. I've probably been to his church. Um, his church was closer to the, uh, the the orphanage that we eventually built. We bought property. And, and it's about time I can tell that story. Uh, but it was just around the corner. Okay. To our kids uh, that have now grown up there and the orphanage that's still there, they're very much connected to his yeah. congregation. But one of the things I appreciate about him is that out of all the times I've been to church there, and I've probably been to his church 30 or 40 times, um, I've probably heard him preach maybe two or three times. Wow. So very much breaking the mold of that possessive, this is mine. Absolutely. He's yeah. always gone on Sundays. He's uh, he's at another church in another community. Yeah. Just recently, as we were talking about, he's like, Phil, I, you know, I, we've gotten so big that, uh, you know, I'm sending out, I can't go out any, as much anymore. I'm sending out the young men now. And mm, he was asking awesome. me some, for some advice. And uh, if there was a need in another community, it reminded me a lot of Paul in sure. the Bible. Yeah. Because you know where he's, he's collecting money for, yeah. and for for food for people, other churches. And that's what uh, this pastor did a lot. And uh, so I want to tell you real quickly, we're almost out of time here. But um, I want to tell you the story about the, the property. So we were living on that property for free for three years. And then we agreed to start helping the church a little bit with a little bit of renting money for a couple of years after that but in the process we found property there uh, in the community and uh, Lonnie and I ran into some people that we knew from our days of being here at heart that ran an organization now and it's a it's another whole another podcast that we can sure do. sure <laughs> it's yeah another long story yeah but we ran into them and they wanted to help us with the orphanage and Lonnie and I had decided at that point, we really think education is really key to helping Haiti uh, go places. And so we wanted to have a school. So we raised money on our own, and we bought property to build a school. And next door, 
this other organization wanted to continue to help with the orphanage and yeah. they bought that piece. Okay. And so we were building a wall around the two pieces and then all of a sudden in the midst of it, they drop off the face of the planet. We can't get anybody on the phone. They're not answering emails. Okay. And we're like, yeah, concerning. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Very concerning. So their, their, their financial source was a man who was a, a physician and he had a real burden for Haiti. And mm -hmm. he'd started an organization. And so out of the blue, finally one day we get a phone call. How yeah. do you feel? We're sorry. We've been really quiet. There's some things that changed. We want, we're going to fly a couple of people down to meet with you. Okay. We want to see the property and want to find out what's going on. And we'll fill you in on what's going on from our end. We're like, okay. So they come down and we go down and we give them a tour of the property and we're walking around. And we're still wondering what's going on, right? Yeah. They're just kind of there looking and talking. And they said, well, here's the good news, the bad news. The bad news is the man who was funding this, he's passed away. Mm. And his board, really, their their hearts, most of his board members' hearts are in Vietnam. Mm. So there's some money in the bank, um, and they want to honor him by continuing this work. Yeah. And uh, But there's not enough to you know do everything you want to do. <clears throat> but if you'll continue to do the work that you started here with the orphanage part on this property that we purchased, um, we're willing to write you a check for $10,000. Uh -huh. And right. we were like, okay, there you go. <laughs> we're, we're, we're ready. Cause when we were at the point now, we were ready to start building orphanage. But yeah. having said that, I'll say, you know, you don't, you shouldn't start a project unless you have all the money. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. We started with $10,000 <laughs> and, um, that was just a, a it was just a, a a miracle thing in the in the process of living up there in the mountains. We had met a guy who worked for the Peace Corps. Yeah, his father was a, was a Lutheran pastor in Colorado, and he had come by and told us the story about how he was he really felt burdened for Haiti. He was going to start this ministry for children in Haiti, and I had gotten a package in the mail, just in a Manila envelope, and uh, it was weird because it was from Colorado, but the application was in Creole, Haitian Creole. <laughs> So no cover letter or anything. Hmm. So I filled it out and sent it back. And this pa the pastor's son that worked for the Peace, Peace Corps at the time came by to see us one day. He goes, hey, did my dad ever reach out to you guys? I go, no, I've never heard anything from your dad. And he said, well, they said they sent you an application. I went, oh. I said, that was them? He said, yeah. I said, that was really weird because it came from Colorado but was in Creole. He goes, well, don't worry. If you fill it out, you'll hear from them. So a few months went by, and finally the pastor called me. He goes, hey, Phil, we've looked at your application and we've met as a board this is our first time doing this but we're we're really gaining some some donors and things and we want to help you guys so uh you've been approved and so in a few months i'll let you know you know how much you're going to get so i'm thinking you know from my past experiences i'll get three or four or five thousand yeah, dollars you know yeah. it'll keep us going yeah on the project because we got the ten thousand we had started and yeah. everything so in January of that year, I get a phone call from him one night and I'm at home alone. Uh, my son is there with me and my daughter and my wife are here in the States. And uh, so Pastor Rick calls and he goes, Phil, he goes, hey, this is Rick. He said, I want to tell you, we, you know, we got your money and we're going to send you a check. And we decided, you know, we divvied it all out to the different five organizations that we're going to support. And he said, uh, would you like to know how much you're going to get? I'm like, yeah, and he's shuffling. You can hear him shuffling papers, you know. And uh, he goes, uh, we're sending you $18,000. Oh, man. And I was like, Rick, I'm going to sit down on the bed a second. I said, well, hold on just a second. <laughs> so I sit down and I said, say that again. He said, oh, we're sending you like $18,300. Oh, and he goes, we're going to do that every year probably for a wow. few years. And so in the midst of that even, uh, we had a group uh, from Indiana that were associated. I think they were a community church. And, uh, but they came down and worked with a Methodist group in Haiti yeah. for years. And I'm at home one day and I get a phone call and, um, this guy says, uh, Hey, this is so-and-so. I work at the uh, Methodist guest house here in Port-au-Prince. So yeah, he said, we got a group here from, uh, Franklin, Indiana. My wife is from Indiana. Okay. And, uh, they've always come down and work with us, but the board, our board has made new rules. And so we only let Methodist groups work on our Methodist projects. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking, this group's here and they've got money and they want a project. Can mm -hmm. we bring them up there to the mountains and we'll bring them up every day and bring them back to the guest house every hmm. day. And we're like, free work and <laughs> money with it? Yeah, we'll. Please, we'll, yeah, we'll, come on. <laughs> come on. 
Bring your so, friends. Let's so go. they came up and then they said, Hey, can we start working with you guys? That's awesome. And we're like, yes. And so from then on, they worked with us every year. They bring yeah. one or two groups down. They were just a really supportive group. In mm. fact, I'm still in contact with wow. some of them. That's awesome. Uh, and they continue to support the work in Haiti. And they're now, some of them are supporting the work here at uh, uh, heart as well. Awesome. And that those kind of stories continued over that. We started building the orphanage in the year 2000. Okay. And we finished in 2003 and opened it up in 2003. Awesome. So it was three years of our life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it it's just an incredible story. And again... I say it's evidence of uh, of God's faithfulness. Yeah. Um, I'm not one of those that says, you know, you just pray and it miraculously appears. I've never really had those experiences. Sure. But I've seen the miraculous. Yeah. I mean. And you had uh, the faith. had, had to be there, like you were saying, this whole time. time and t- I you mean, just nobody sat down and rent me a check for $150,000. But over the period of those three yeah. years, we spent about that much money. Yeah. I mean, God provided. God provided yeah. along the way, and that's that's kind of been my story. I would love for God to send somebody to write us a check for a million dollars for heart. <laughs> I'm still waiting on that. I'm still believing, uh, but it, that hasn't even been my experience yeah. here. It's just yeah. like when we need it, it shows up. You know, and God God's provides. There. Yeah, and we try and push the envelope as much as we can. You know, when I became the director here at Heart, it was kind of the same way when I came into the orphanage there were things that needed to be done but there was there was no money to do it yeah and so we've just we've just been doing it uh the way that we did it there we just this is what we who we want to be and this is where we want to go and we've just started doing it here and god's always shown up yeah. you know along the way yeah and i and i can't i'm not trying to compare myself to any biblical characters but when i read the biblical stories and the bible that's what I see. Yeah. You know, when God told Abraham to go, yeah. He didn't tell him really where he was going yeah. and really what he was going to mm. be doing. That's good. Uh, when he told the Israelite people where to go, you know, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and things were happening, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't point A to point B. Yeah. And one of the stories that I tell about my life is that what I've learned is that. I was one of those people that I do want to know. We're getting up this morning. What are yeah. we doing? Yeah. When are we going? Yeah. When are we packing our bags? When are we getting in the car? Yeah. And I have to know all the details. Sure. Well, God kind of looks at me and laughs, I think, <laughs> and goes, <Yeah>. watch this. <laughs> and so I've had many journeys, and I've learned that the journey, the destination is less important journey. than the journey. Yeah. And that's a real hard one. Yeah. Uh, for me, especially being an American, because yeah. we, we think that the end goal is the goal. Yeah. And uh, it, it's really not. And and I'm thankful to say that over the years that we were in Haiti, that we, we left in 2007 with a functioning orphanage. They had property of their own, the clean papers for it. There's a building next door that is used as a school and also using it as a guest house. And they've used it as a sewing school and different things. Um, and we've left leadership, you know, that we raised up in yeah. the home and it's been a, it's been a journey and I'm thankful that the, the end goal is something to be proud of. Yeah. But when we think about, when we think back and the kids that we raised, think back about, uh, our time there and the, in in the influence that we had on their lives, it's not the building. It's not. The gardens or any of those things, those are important and they learn great skills. But it was the journey along the way and and their personal growth. That's good. And, uh, you know, I was blessed last November, uh, December, on my my birthday, there was a surprise party for me. My staff and my wife and my daughter put it together. And that was on like a Thursday or a Friday. And Saturday or Sunday, I was, after that, I was at home resting on the couch. And my wife, we were supposed to go somewhere. She kept making excuses why she wasn't quite ready yet. And um, I'm laying on the couch. I'm about to fall asleep. And I hear the door open. And I think it's my wife coming back in the back door. And when I open my eyes, one of the girls that we raised is standing there mm. in the living room. 
And she's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, my goodness. And got up, and her sister was right behind her. And then they had wow. their 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 kids in tow. And one of yeah. them's husband, the other one's husband was working, couldn't come. And they brought birthday cakes and food. Wow. And uh, they took us out for dinner. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And yeah. uh, we, we have those kind of surprises uh, happen to us all the time. And uh, it, it's just a reminder of God's faithfulness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people used to, when we would travel to churches, they would talk about, well, here's the, Mur- the, the Murphys and their, their missionaries and people of great faith. And, and I, I don't really enjoy hearing that because I'm not a person of great faith. Mm. Um, anytime God asks me to do anything, I'm reluctant to do it. Mm. I don't want to do it. And, uh, and I don't believe that I can do it. And I, and I always think of myself as a very faithless person, so mm-hmm. to speak, because I, I have to, you know, every time it's like the Lord saying, do you really trust me? And, and I want to go, no, I really don't, <laughs> but I should, because yeah. he always shows up. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, God has been extremely faithful Yeah, and we have just tried to do the best that we could possibly do. Yeah. And I think that's really all God asks of us. Yeah. And uh, I think we put a lot, I think we do two things. One is, as Christians, we put way too much emphasis on ourselves. Mm, that's uh, true. Rather than just taking our talents and doing as God asks. That's so true. And then the other part is we, um, we do, we, we give a lot of stuff to God that's really not his stuff. And um, we don't really trust him like we really should. Hmm. And uh, we blame God for a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so real quickly, I'll share one last story. So in the midst of trying to raise money for the orphanage, again, it's like you shared, it was, I think it was you shared today, of how yeah. you felt like God was telling you to do something, and you're yeah. like, okay, I'm gone. Yeah. And I'm, I'm there. I'm, Let's I'm go. there. Let's go. And that, I, I was really relating to what you were saying because I'm the same way. And then when God taps you on the shoulder and says, I want you to turn left, you're like, no, you told me to go there. Yeah. I'm yeah. going Let's there. Go. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> and I've been hard-headed that way. And so in the <laughs> midst of trying to raise the money for the orphanage, and I had this plan, you know, yeah. get so many people to give so many dollars, you know, we're, we'll have more money than we need. And I'd go to get the mail in, in Haiti you know, once a week it came in and, you know, I'd have a check for a hundred dollars or an extra mm. $50. Yeah. And, and I would just go, God, this is not, this ain't going to work. Yeah. And one day I was really gone to get the mail and I, and I was really angry at God mm. and I was angry at God and I was angry at my wife and the kids and the kids in the orphanage. And I was just pointing the fingers at everybody going, if everybody would just get on board and love me, like I want to be loved and <laughs> reciprocate the yeah. love and everything, Everything would be fine, and I'm really mad at everybody, and they're not doing their part. And just I, I can't say that I've ever heard an audible voice. Yeah. But I'm driving, I'm in traffic, and uh, in the midst of that, it's like I hear inside my head a voice saying, who taught you to love people like that? Mm. I didn't teach you to love people mm. like that. Mm. I don't love you that way. Mm. When you mess up, I still love you. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, I started bawling. I had to pull the mm. car over. I had to pull into a parking lot, and I just wept. Mm. And because uh, I had thrown the checks on the floor of the truck, I was so mad. I got to take those checks out. I went, "That's not enough." And I threw them down on the ground. Mm. And uh, God said, I, "I don't love you that way." So I went, "Oh my goodness!" You know, that, that's right. God doesn't love us that way. He loves us unconditionally. Yeah. And so the reason I should love the kids in the orphanage and love my wife and my own children. And love the people that are trying to help us is because it's what God does. Yeah. It's not because they give something back to me. And that was a life-changing moment for me. It was like, okay, wow. I'm serving God because I'm dedicated to this. Yeah. And I'm dedicated to this idea of unconditional love. And I love people because it's the right thing to do. It's not because I'm going to love them 50% and they give me back 50% of that love. No. I love not them because it's easy. Not yeah. because it's easy. I'm no. going to love them 110%, even if they don't understand or yeah. they don't love me back. I don't care. And that was yeah. a life-changing moment for wow. me. 
And after the crazy thing was after I gave up, yeah, all these people started showing up with this money, yeah, you know, one after the other, yeah, and it was crazy, yeah, mm, that's beautiful, that's awesome. So from there, um, you you were with the orphanage for then how many years would that have been? Total, yeah, we were in there. We were in Haiti for twenty one years. Twenty one years, goodness, and so briefly then, what's the transition then to to heart and tell us a little bit about that transition and a little bit about heart so we had always been of the mindset that we go to the mission field to work ourselves out of a job Mm. when we first went there we were naive enough to think that we'll be there three or four years and we'll hire some people and train them and we'll be gone (laughs) 21 years later (laughs) 21 years later uh we realized you know that's not gonna happen so we started training one of the girls in the orphanage when she was like 16 yeah we recognized her leadership skills Give her, you know, little by little by little. So by the time she was 20, she was basically running the show. Sure. Um, and we continued to, to, to encourage her. So the writing was on the wall that um, we needed to sit down with our family. So we sat down with my my two kids probably when my son was uh, probably around in the ninth or 10th grade. Mm-hmm. And we said, by the time you graduate from high school, we, we should be being able to leave Haiti. Yeah, well, real quick then, because you had your daughter when you went down, so then you had your Our son. Our son was born in Haiti, yeah. mm. which is another story for yeah, another all, time. Yeah, another time, another time. No crazy yeah. story. Uh, so we started focusing on 2007 is going to be our last year. Yeah. And it was crazy. It was really, I re- one of the stories I'll quickly share was I never remember the day. It's, uh, it's either David's junior or senior year. And David, he's only known Haiti his whole life. And, uh, you know, we kept talking about moving back to the States and everything. I think it was his senior year. We're driving home, and I'm driving the car. We picked him up at school, went to a Christian school in town in Port-au-Prince. And my wife is in the passenger seat, and he's in the back seat. And all of a sudden, from the back of the car, we hear wailing. I mean, like I've only seen in movies of women wailing, you know, like Mm. they used to do. Yeah. And it scared me, and I pulled the car over. It was my son. Hmm. And he goes, I don't want to leave. Hmm. I can't leave. This is my home. Hmm. I've lived here my whole life. And we just like, you just rip your heart out, yeah. you know, like, what yeah. are we doing? Yeah. And, uh, and we, 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 we planned this, you know, and he's like, yeah, but I've never known anything else. Hmm. And he goes, I'm going to go off to college, but I want to be able to come back, you know, yeah. and you guys are going to be gone and yeah. it won't be the same. Hmm. It was, a, it was a tough time, but we really felt like, you know, we looked at other missionaries that had stayed, I would say, stayed too long. Mm. And they some of them were bitter, mm. didn't really have really? a purpose. Wow. And I said, I don't want to be that. Wow. We had other job opportunities. People yeah. said, yeah, you can come work for us and we'll just, you know, yeah. we'll hire you for our organization. But I felt like, you know what, I really, uh, I think it's time for us to go. Yeah. And so I knew, <clears throat> I knew from... My relationship with Hart, and I knew the former director, and I knew that there was a possibility that they were going to offer me the job yeah. of, of coming here. Yeah. And I was prepared to say no, definitely. Mm. I was By that time, I was ready to go work at Walmart, be a greeter, <laughs> and I didn't want any responsibility, didn't want to have anything to do with ministry yeah. anymore. It's yeah. like, I'm tired. I've been this for 21 years. Yeah. But I was teaching here. I would come and teach appropriate technology. Yeah. Um, for about two years, I was doing that. I'd come a couple times a year. Sure. And, and teach for, for heart. So when I arrived in the fall, we had left Haiti in the July of 2007 uh, and uh, came back to the States and we were itinerating, say, itinerating and saying goodbye to all of our supporting churches. And um, when I came in November to teach here uh, in Lake Wales, and we had bought a house a few years before that here in Lake Wales in, uh, in preparation for moving back here because we had friends and, and, and things here. Um, the director came to me when I came to teach in November of 2007 and said, hey, the board met and we just had a board meeting and we would really like to offer you a job here as a uh, uh, associate director with the idea of taking my, replacing me in the next couple of years. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll pray about it. And so I always tell the people I made the mistake of saying I'll pray about it. And I thought I would be really smart. And so I said, Lord, here I am again. And I got you this time. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna find ten people, 
to pray for me. Yeah. And and give me a response in a couple of weeks. Yeah. About whether I should take this job or not. If I get two no's, I'm not doing it. And mm. I knew there were some people I could definitely count on yeah. as a no. Yeah. I got 10 yeses. Wow. I was so ticked. <laughs> I, was so, I was so mad at God again. <laughs> but, um, uh, that was a reverse Abraham. 10 good yeah, people. Absolutely. Got the, had just the 10 need, there. I just needed two no's and I got 10 yeses. So, but I'm, I'm so thankful to be in this position because we get to impact uh, lives. Yeah. And heart is so much more than a missionary training ground. Uh, I, I wish a lot more people would come and could come through the program because it, it gives people that experience. The experiences that we're that I'm talking about today happen here at Heart because yeah. it takes people out of their comfort zone. Yeah, and they are challenged by being in living in the woods and not having electricity. Yeah, and learning things and it's huge. maybe dialoguing with people that they yeah. necessarily wouldn't pick as their friends, kind of a thing. Yeah, and really grows people. And uh, the, one of the joys of the last couple of years is contacting alumni and they're going, "Hey." I would not be where I am, whether I'm, whether they're serving overseas or they're running a farm in Colorado or yeah. wherever. I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for heart. Yeah. Uh, it really, it really made a difference in my life. So, you so, know, I think it's it's super important that we allow God. You know, the, one of the problems, Josiah, that I see here in America, and uh, I, I love my country, um, but. I would say that one of the things that I would say, especially not just for the society in general, but even for the church, we really don't need God. Mm. And uh, when I was in Haiti, buddy, we needed him yeah. and we, and we yeah. knew it. Yeah. And here, I mean, the reality is, um, you know, we have our jobs and we have our government and we have a, lo- a lot of what we call safety nets. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And we so do. trusting God is, is really foreign to us we Hmm. say that we we verbalize trusting god and i shared i don't know if i shared it with you guys but i shared it with some of the other students the other day is what i've been recently trying to convey and and focus on in my life is we trust god that's an easy thing for us christians to say Mm -hmm. but we don't like what i've talked what we talked about today we don't like the process yeah we don't like the road yeah. So I've been talking and reading scripture a little bit differently, differently and realizing that our faith is about process. Yeah. It is the process. Of course, God is in that process, but that's the part we really don't like. <laughs> and that, and so I talk about... It's where it can get uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. So I talk about, yeah, we trust God, but do we trust the process? Mm. We want God to be a magician yeah. and make everything rosy for yeah. us. I've heard it put like a, a vending machine. You want to be able to go in and put the we coin do. and select what we want and it drop and you get what you want. Yeah. It's not like that at all. At least no. That has not been my experience. Yeah, I agree with that. Completely. And so I've been encouraging people and even encouraging myself is when people say, you know, I'm going through this right now. I got a friend of mine that's been going through some difficult things and when she called to me, you know, what's going on. And she knows where I'm at in, in my relationship with God right now. And I would just say, well, I'm praying for you as you go through the process. And I'm encouraging you to trust the process. Hmm. I'm not saying that God's not in the process. He is. But it's it's kind of cliche for us to go, I'm trusting the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, but we're really not because we don't like it when it gets bumpy or, yeah. or when it takes a left-hand turn and we wanted to go straight. Yeah. Well, that's that process. And yeah. so are we trusting that process? Yeah. And that's what's really hard for us as humans. Yeah. And I would say even a step further, as we've been talking about just in our culture as well, as Americans, that is something, you know, when we want something, you know, and you're like, we've made a deal. You said, like, I trust you. You like, you're supposed to help me here. And when it doesn't go our way, that's very much, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't always uh, work the way that we want it to. But God's way is the best way. You know, and it's like you're saying that journey. There's so much we, there's so there, there's so many folks that I've talked to and, and things along those lines where it's just like you go in with one way, and it's just you know you're trusting in God. You're going in, and it's so much more you've gotten out of this, and so much the journey, like you're saying, is just so important, and um, the process of getting to these destinations is just so important, and what and how God really works and works through the people around you and in you, and yeah, for sure, I love it. Well, as you shared earlier today, what we do is when God gives us a vision or a glimpse of something or a motivation or spirit to do something, 
we automatically paint a picture or build a model. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we get in trouble. Mm. Because mm. I don't think that's really the way God operates. Mm. I, I think of God, excuse me, I think of God a lot as an artist. And so when God is working in our lives, I don't know that God has a complete picture. Mm -hmm. he, he could if he sure. wanted to. But I think God is more of an artist. So he starts putting some color on the board. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really know how it's going to turn out. Mm -hmm. And then he puts a little color here and then it starts taking a little shape. And then it turns into something else and God goes, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do that a little bit <laughs> because God is, you know, he created this universe yeah. that we live in and it's a very mystical, magical place really and truly mm. and uh, such amazing things that we learn about the universe all the time. And that's the God we serve. Mm. He's not the God of a cheese box, which is very boring yeah. and, and the same. God works in each of our lives very differently. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we're so used to formulas. Yeah. Hmm. I'm about out of time. All right. <laughs> well, um, we could talk for days. We could. Um, I know. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Uh, if if people want to know a little bit more about Heart and what you guys do, uh, where where can we look for some of that? You can go online at uh, heartvillage.org, and we have a pretty decent website. We're also on Facebook at Heart Village. And uh, we'd love to have you come down and visit what we're doing here. And uh, we didn't really get to talk about much about what Heart is, but we are. We started as a missionary training organization, but we now are more than that. Yeah. And uh, we also reach out to people who want to learn more about sustainability. And, yeah. Uh, we have a forty-acre sustainable garden here, so to speak, farm really yeah. and truly, and we have raised animals and have. We have fish and we have vegetables and fruits and uh, we focus a lot on tropical, subtropicals and tropicals. And uh, we also have some, you know, what I would call the, the basic vegetables and, and fruits as well. And we're trying to feed people and teach people about feeding themselves and feeding their neighbors. And we also are still training those who want to go overseas. Yeah. And uh, like uh, you and I talked about, it's one of our big burdens. Um, it, it, it's, it's sad to see that the church isn't doing as much and there's some good reasons why they're not there are a lot of people yeah. in other countries that are right you know raising up now and yeah and that's great but i still think we need to go and see and be a part whether it's across the street or across the country or halfway yeah. around the world to see what god's doing and and see how we can be a part of that uh what we what i tell my students is don't go to sit on top of people and lord over them but go to sit beside them and minister alongside of them. Yeah. And that's so good. with both of your ha hands together at the wheel, working together, learning, always learning from one another. Mm. And one of the things that we do here at Heart is our staff is we try and invite. I hope that you've all felt that we invite you into the learning circle. Very much so. It's not yeah. us going, hey, we know everything and yeah. you don't know anything. We want to hear from you as well. Yeah. And we think that everybody has something to offer. That's awesome. That's so important too, because they do. <laughs> it's true. Uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. I'd love to uh, talk to you again some other time, start going into some of these uh, teachings as well. I think it would be very educational and a fun time. I always enjoy it. Uh, but uh, until then, uh, we'll have to put a pin in that. And I hope you've all enjoyed this. And uh, please check them out. Heart is an amazing place. I've loved my time here. I've, I've spent a good deal of time here now and i've loved every second of it every time i come so definitely check them out and look into that uh, it'd be worth your time but uh, thank you all so much and i hope you all have a wonderful day